hear the word of the Lord to us from 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and have eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Wow, isn't it great to worship together? What a privilege. Thank you, Adrienne and choir and band, for leading us to celebrate God. Well, today we come to one of the most personal, stunning passages in the New Testament. As Paul shares openly from his own life with his dear son in the faith, Timothy. Paul openly reveals his heart in a powerful way to help Timothy in his own personal journey with God. Timothy, as we know, was somewhat timid. He felt inadequate in ministry. He struggled with what Paul was calling him to do in leading this church in Ephesus. And he was faced with helping that church live out the gospel in a very difficult culture. In fact, Paul himself was about to be executed by that very culture, leaving Timothy to carry on. So how could Paul really encourage Timothy to carry out his ministry? How could he instill confidence in him, a kind of confidence that would keep him going no matter what the world threw at him? Well, interestingly, as we look at this passage, the way Paul does that, the way Paul encourages Timothy is by sharing his own grace story. You see, every one of us in this room, if we know Jesus, we have a grace story. (laughs) A story of how God's grace met us in the mess of our lives and began working in our lives and continues to work in our lives day by day. That's our grace story. One of the most powerful ways to encourage someone else is to share your grace story what God has done in your life and how He has moved and poured out His grace on you. Our men's Bible study this summer, they didn't have a leader and what they did is they took turns and they went around and told their personal grace 
story, and it was a great encouragement to the men who were there. So as Paul shares his grace story in this passage, he reveals to us what a heart looks like that's been gripped by the gospel. First Timothy, as we introduced it last week, is a book about a gospel-centered church, what it means to be a gospel-centered church and, and live that out in a hostile, difficult culture. But a gospel-centered church needs to be full of gospel-centered people, gospel-centered lives. So this text, as Paul shares his life and reveals what a gospel-centered life looks like, some of the marks of that will help us understand what it means for us, you and me, here today in 2014 to live out a gospel-centered life. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible openness of Paul's life as he shares with Timothy and with the Ephesians and ultimately with us today about his own life, his own grace story. And Lord, as he exalts your grace and reveals his heart, may we be moved to understand our own grace story more fully and to be worshipers, thankful worshipers of you. May we be gospel-centered people. Use your word in a powerful way. We submit ourselves to you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three marks of a gospel-centered life that I see in this brief passage as Paul shares with us. The first one is a thankful heart. A thankful heart. You see, many times in Scripture we're commanded to be thankful, right? Give thanks for all things. Give thanks in all things. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Which means that it really is a choice. It's a choice of the will. But what we see in Paul here is kind of more deep and more profound even than that. What we see in Paul is that this kind of thankfulness, a deep thankfulness, is an overflow of a heart that's been truly gripped by the gospel. In particular, we see Paul saying that he is overwhelmed with thankfulness to God who has given him strength, and in verse 12, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul is overwhelmed that God would consider him faithful. Now, you need to understand what he's saying here. It kind of sounds like he's saying, well, you know, God looked at me and he said, wow, Paul sure is a faithful guy. So I'm going to appoint him to ministry because he is such a great guy. <laughs> that is not what he's saying. The word for consider here could be declared or reckoned, decided. In other words, what Paul is saying is that I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness because God looked at me when I was not faithful and decided that he would make me faithful and use me for his ministry to build his kingdom. And for that, he's overwhelmed with thankfulness that God would appoint me to serve him. In verse 13 and 14, then he reviews his past and declares more of what he's thankful for. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance 
and unbelief. Paul reviews his past and though and recognized that though he was terrible to God's church, he uses these three descriptions. I was a blasphemer. In other words, what he said, he spoke against God. He lied about God. What he said about God was untrue. And he led people astray. He was a blasphemer. But not only was he a blasphemer, it says he was a persecutor. He chased down Christians. He stood there while Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death. And he watched people's coats so they could throw harder. (laughs) And he chased Christians and put them in jail. Not only that, he says, I was a violent man. Interesting word here. It's a word that means mean, insolent. The kind of man who you spend time with and, and you just felt like this guy is angry. He's mean. He's insulting. He's despicable. He says, this is exactly what I was. But God's grace, His abundant grace, got poured on me despite all that. And along with His faith and love poured out on me. He goes on to say, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Again, you need to understand what he's saying here. He isn't saying, like it may sound, well, but because I really didn't know what I was doing, God showed me mercy. Uh, That's not what he's saying. In fact, mercy means not getting the punishment you deserve. He's saying, even though I was ignorant, even though... I was mean and angry at God even though I was an unbeliever and I did not believe truth. I rejected truth. God poured His mercy on me. I was completely undeserving and yet God poured His mercy on me. You see, as we see from this passage, God's, or excuse me, Paul's thankfulness came from a deep sense that he did not deserve God's mercy, God's grace, God's faith, God's love that he describes here. He didn't deserve his goodness at all. In fact, what he deserved, as he thinks about his life before Christ, he realizes, you know what? I deserved hell. I deserve God's rejection. And yet God not only poured his grace on me, but he entrusted the gospel to me. Notice the end of verse 11. We looked at last week that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which He entrusted to me. Wow! Paul's overwhelmed with thankfulness as he thinks about what he was and how God met him in that place, poured out grace, mercy, faith, and love, and said, I want to use you for my kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is key to a gospel-centered heart. We To have an overwhelming sense of thankfulness to God. But I think a lot of us struggle with this a bit. We won't be thankful for something you think you deserve, right? Most, most of us in this room get a paycheck, maybe a social security check that we've earned over time, maybe a commission check or something like that. Um, but, you know, we're thankful when we get it. It's nice to have but we also know we deserve it. We earned it. We worked for it. (laughs) And so we're mildly thankful for it. 
But if you know that you are on death row, you deserve to be executed for your sin. And you know you're ready to die. That's what you deserve. And the king comes to you and says, you know what? I'm going to pardon you. Presidential pardon, if you will. But not only am I going to pardon you, I'm going to take you into my home, says the king, the president. And I am going to adopt you into my home. And I am going to give you leadership responsibilities in my home. Now, if that happened to you, wouldn't you be overwhelmed by, I don't deserve this. This is way beyond what I could even imagine, this kind of goodness towards me. Who doesn't deserve it? And yet that's exactly what's happened, isn't it? And Paul is so overwhelmed with that sense that God is that good to us and to him that he's overwhelmed with thankfulness. Do you know you don't deserve God's grace? Do you really know that in your heart? A key to knowing that, whether you really are gripped with the gospel, is if you are overwhelmed with a deep thankfulness, that you understand everything is a gift that you don't deserve. Everything is a gift. Now, there's a lot of people in this room that are like me. You don't have a sordid past like Paul. You weren't a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent person, perhaps. You, you were pretty compliant like me. I, was, I worked hard to be a good person and earn things and get good grades and please my parents and all of that. So when I came to Christ, you know, I was excited about what God did for me and as long as my life went well, I felt pretty good about it and I was thankful. Yeah, Lord, it's great to be a Christian. Look at all these blessings. It's great. Thank you. But as trials began to come, real difficulties in my life that were huge, big, overwhelming trials, I was a lot less thankful. Wait a minute, God. <laughs> I'm a pretty good guy. What are you doing here? This is not fair. And a lot of us are angry at God because we feel like we deserve better. I really felt like I deserved better. <laughs> but then over time, as God began to reveal it, my own heart to me, the pride, the arrogance, the critical spirit, the self-centeredness, the self-dependence that really drove what I did, that I was a nice guy because it helped me control my own life and not need God. I saw how ugly that was. And over time, understanding more and more of my own heart has increased my thankfulness. So that we, I've become thankful even for trials because I know how God uses them to break me of all those ugly things in my own heart. As Paul says in Romans 5, starting in verse 3, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Because we know what they produce in our lives, and we long to be different because we've been gripped. We've seen how much we need His grace every minute. 
That's a thankful heart. And so a key mark of a gospel-centered life, one that has understood the gospel at a deep heart level, not just head level, but a heart level, is an increasingly deeper and deeper thankfulness and seeing everything, everything as a gift of God's love. Even the hard things, even the painful things. The second mark that I see in this passage of a gospel-centered life is an increasing sense of your own sinfulness. An increasing sense of your own sinfulness. In verses 15 and 16, Paul lays out the gospel. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He lays out the gospel. He says, wow, this this is exciting. Christ Jesus came into the world. God Himself, the Creator of the universe, became one of us, came into the world to save sinners. And Paul is excited about it. But then he says something very jarring. In our culture that emphasizes good self-esteem and you've got to think well of yourself, etc., he, he says something really jarring here. He says, he came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. <laughs> I am the worst. Now, commentators have struggled with how to explain this. You see, Paul saying something that seems so extreme, how can that be true? Is he just regretful of how bad he was before he became a Christian? Yeah, he was a pretty bad guy. But notice he puts it in present tense and he says it twice. I am the worst of sinners. Is he just using hyperbole? You know, he doesn't really mean it. He's just kind of stretching things. Well, possibly, but why would he repeat it twice? And why would he use it in this passage where he's really sharing his heart? And he uses a comparative here, really the word first in the Greek, where he says, of whom I am first. If you had a list of all the sinners in the world, I'd be at the top. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, all those guys, you know what? They'd be below me. I am at the top of the list. I am the worst. So, what does he mean by that? Well, we have to wrestle with that. I I like what John Stott says in his commentary on this passage. He says this, Can Paul really mean this? Are we to understand him literally? Well, this is an interesting hermeneutical question. Common sense tells us not to take his statement as a precise scientific fact for he had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them, and concluded that he was the worst of all. The truth is rather that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. You see, part of having a gospel-centered heart is the Holy Spirit begins to convict you and show you what your heart is really like. 
and reveal more and more of your own sinfulness so that you are amazed more and more by His grace. As I've already kind of said, this is true in my own life. I thought I was a pretty good guy. But over time, as God has just opened up my eyes to more and more of what my heart is really like and how my life, uh, if I don't depend on Him, if I don't cling to Him, I am capable of anything, any sin. Then I've been more and more overwhelmed with this sense that I am the worst of sinners. I see how poorly I trust Him. I had a wonderful time this summer. Jeannie and I got to go to a pastor's retreat center and we spent a week there. It was a wonderful time of focusing on the Lord and just delighting in Him and worshiping Him. It was great. And then the last couple days before I was about to come back and come back to work, I felt the anxiety start to build. (laughs) You know what that's like when you've been on vacation, right? And... As the anxiety began to build, it started getting worse and worse and more overwhelming. And so I just kind of took it before the Lord and said, Lord, what is going on here? Why, why so much anxiety? This seems worse than normal. And he began to reveal in my heart that a lot of what was going on is in the past year, as I'd faced stress, my body hadn't handled it well and I'd faced some very difficult physical things in response. And so in my mind, I was beginning to think about, wow, what if I go back and what if there's a lot of stress and what what if my body can't handle it and what if this happens and I have to have surgery and what if... And my mind was going and going with worry about all this and suddenly God just said, whoa, stop. You're not trusting me at all. And he just revealed to me how much I still, after years of walking with the Lord, there's a huge part of me that just wants to control everything and make sure I'm safe and I want, it, I want to be in charge and I want to run my own life and I don't want to have to trust God. And it's a very ugly part of my heart. But it's still there. And as I walk with God over time, it becomes more and more real to me as I look at my own sinfulness. Note Paul's progression over time. I want to have you turn with me to a couple of passages and kind of look at Paul's growth over time. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians verses, chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Now, Paul wrote this book of 1 Corinthians around A.D. 55, fairly early in his ministry. And he says this in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Notice relatively early in his life in ministry, Paul says, you know, I'm a pretty bad guy. I'm the least of the church leaders. But boy, isn't God's grace wonderful towards me. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 7. Here's Paul about six years later or so. He's walked with God a little longer. He's had a lot more experiences. God has revealed his heart to him more and more. 
And notice what he says in verses, beginning in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people, the least of the saints, literally. Although I'm least of the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So around A.D. 61, 62, as he's grown in his relationship with God, he moves from, man, I'm the least of the apostles of all the church leaders, to, you know what, I'm, I'm the worst of all saints. That's what I see about myself now. I really am a mess. And now in 1 Timothy, near the end of his life, around A.D. 65, so another three or four years later, after he wrote Ephesians, as he's facing the reality that he will die soon. What does Paul say? I am the worst of all sinners. So you see the progression in his life, is his understanding of himself as he goes deeper with God, he has a deeper awareness of his own desperate need for God. So how does this work? I mean, this... You know, this kind of goes against what we think, right? Because in the Christian life, we think God's changing us, making more like Jesus. So over time, we ought to think, wow, I'm better than I used to be. We kind of think that way, right? Well, maybe I'm the only one. But, um, but I think here's the way it works. When you're walking in darkness, if you walk up to a mirror, you probably look pretty good. But the more light that comes, you start seeing things and, oh man, that's, yeah, that doesn't look very good. And, and it's kind of like the old thing Ray Stedman used to say, as soon as your face clears up, your mind starts to go. <laughs> <laughs> and you're looking in the mirror and the more light you have, the more imperfections you see. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we understand who He is and His glory and His awesomeness, if we look at ourselves, which is probably a mistake anyway, but if we look at ourselves, well, it's okay to do sometimes because Paul's doing it here. If we look at ourselves, what we see increasingly over time is more, more of our own sinfulness, our desperate need for Him. That stuff was always there. We just didn't see it before. So we become increasingly aware of our desperate need to rely on him every moment. Preston Sprinkle, a Christian writer who lives in Boise now, going to start a Christian college here, writes this in his book, Chorus. We are all vile sinners, addicted to the muck and sludge of our own depravity. We are victims beaten down by other people's depravity. We are therefore walking magnets for God's scandalous grace. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful picture? We're a mess. And that's where God's grace loves to be poured out. On messed up people like you and me. He's not talking about beating yourself up, okay? He's not saying, 
Oh, I'm a terrible person. What an idiot. I shouldn't have done that. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. That, that's trying to do penance, folks. That's, that is a false humility. It's trying to stay in control. And maybe I can motivate myself to be better if I just beat myself up. That is not what Paul's doing here. That is not a gospel-centered heart. A gospel-centered heart just recognizes the reality of how desperately I need you and we go immediately to Jesus. I need your grace, forgiveness every moment. The world says we need to have good self-esteem, right? And this runs contrary to that. I understand that. You know, the world has gotten to a place where on kids' teams, you don't keep score because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because you can't have a winner because you'll have a loser. And that might hurt someone's feelings, so let's make everybody winners. Well, you know, it's kind of like the old Saturday Night Live skit, Stuart, his whole thing. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And if you just repeat that enough, maybe you'll feel good about yourself. That's kind of the attitude of the world. But that's not a gospel-centered heart. A gospel-centered heart, someone who's been gripped with the gospel has this attitude. I'm a sinful mess. Yet I am beloved by God and He's poured His grace on me. I'm a recipient of His love. He loves me. (laughs) Verse 14 again, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I'm His child, and He's chosen to put me into service. He's entrusted me, me, with the gospel. Oh, I can't can't believe it. Wow, Lord. Thank you. What a miracle of His love. You see, every one of us who know His grace is a walking miracle of grace. We're an example of what Paul says of himself in verse 16. For that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You and I are visual aids to the world of the walking, we're walking miracles of God's grace. God's love. Do we deserve it? No! None of you do, and neither do I. But do we get it? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So Paul ends up with the third mark of a gospel-centered life, and that's a worshiping heart. I like the way he ends this. You see, where you end up always, if you've been gripped by the gospel, is worship. Real worship heart worship. And notice what he says in verse 17. Now, now, in light of all this, he just has to interrupt his letter to Timothy and say, now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is so moved by thinking about what God has done for him in His grace and His love, completely undeserved, that he's moved to just praise who God is. But I'm really struck here. Notice he doesn't do what I would probably do or what I would expect him to do, which is, wow, praise you for your love to me. 
Praise you for your grace towards me. Now, that's a good thing to do. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. He's, he's expressed that thankfulness. But when he's moved to worship, he's moved beyond that to praise God for his incredible uniqueness. Wow, God, you are not like any human I've ever known. You're not like my parents. You're not like any other person in my life. You're not like me. You are so unique, other, that I just have to worship and praise you for who you are. Not what you've done for me at this point, but for who you are. He's caught, through the gospel, he's caught a glimpse of the incredible wonder of who God is. And he's just got to praise him for it. Notice what he says. I just want to highlight it. Now to the king. Lord, you're the sovereign one over all the universe. You reign. You're above everything. You have all power, all authority. You rule over mankind. You rule over all creation. You are the king. And you're the king eternal. Wow, Lord, you're not like us. We're trapped in this timeline and we are right here today, 2014. I'm stuck here in the present. But you're eternal. You exist outside of time. So time from the beginning of creation to the second coming of Christ, all of time to you is present. Oh God, you're eternal. You see it all from beginning to end. You exist outside of time. You are not bound by time. You see all of history at once. And you're immortal. You exist completely outside of creation. You could never decay or grow old. There's no limits on you. Everything else, including me, decays, but not you. You're eternal. You exist outside of creation. And you're invisible. You exist outside of our senses. You, you exist beyond what we can see. You are spirit. You are other. You are almighty. And then he says, as a summary, you are the only God. There's no one, nothing like you. You are so incredible. The only one in the universe and beyond the universe. You are unique and you have no rivals. So Paul breaks into praise. Be, honor and glory be to you forever and ever. Amen. So what does a gospel-centered life look like? I love Paul's example here as he shares his grace story. What does a gospel-centered life look like? Well, on the outside, it looks like us. It can look really different. It may not stand out that much. But on the inside, in the heart of someone who's been gripped by the gospel will be these qualities. And this is where God is moving every one of us in this room to become a person who is overwhelmingly thankful for God's grace. Who has an increasing 
desperately deep, growing sense of how sinful I am and how desperately I need you because my heart is prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. And that has a growing heart of worship. Certainly, yes, for what God has done for me, but learning more and more to worship Him simply for who He is. Incredible, unique, the only God. May we be gospel-centered people. And like Paul, may we each keep sharing our grace story. I know it's in process. We don't have it together. Neither did Paul. But keep sharing your grace story with others. It's a great encouragement as you share what God has done in your life and how he's poured out grace on your life. It will encourage others to walk with him and trust him. And we each in this room can have confidence that God can use us. If he could use Paul, he can use us. We're just like Paul. Not because of our goodness, because we ain't got any, but because of His greatness, His grace, His mercy, His love, His awesomeness. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what can we say to this but thank you? Praise you. How incredible you are. You are not like us. You are a God of grace and mercy and faith and love. And you chose us when we didn't deserve it. And you choose us daily, though we don't deserve it now, to be your children and your servants. And for all this, we thank you and we praise you. For it's in Jesus' name we can even come and talk to you. Amen.